Welcome to the Seafood Matters Podcast. I am your host, Jim Cowie. In each episode, we'll dive into the world of seafood, and by chatting with fishermen, fishery scientists and seafood chefs, we'll highlight the importance of seafood in our daily lives, economy and environment. Whether you catch your own seafood, love cooking it, or want to learn more about where your fish comes from, you'll find it all here on the Seafood Matters Podcast. In this episode, Ashley engages with Mahir Pershad, the founder and CEO of Amami Meats, a cellular aquaculture startup based in Singapore. He claims his product will increase the sustainability of wild stocks and safeguard our oceans. However, this episode comes only days after Italy stated. Italy is the first nation in the world that has safeguarded itself from the social and economic risks of synthetic food. We explore the production process from beginning to end providing you with the data so that you can form your own opinions on this controversial subject. What I'd like to do is start with your LinkedIn profile before we come directly to what you do. I'd like to read it. It says that you're a serial entrepreneur, you're passionate about harvesting deep tech and business model innovation to tackle the world's most significant essential problems So what I'd like to ask you is before you come into the world of seafood, what were some of the other um, significant or essential problems, if you like, that you were involved in? What's your background? Sure. So my, I come out of a biochemistry background in university. And I think like most people who start working in the scientific field, working in human health research, um, and, but had a, had a really strong desire to find something that could move more quickly and impact more people in a, in a time frame. Uh, and so I had the, the opportunity to join a venture studio. And while I was at this venture studio, we worked pretty deeply on a few problems. Uh, actually, that was my introduction to seafood um, and food, but we were also looking at uh, climate tech. And so we were looking specifically at ways to naturally capture carbon in ways that create economic value, even if the carbon itself has no value um, financially. And that would include growing plants that could be brought into the food system, things like duckweeds, algaes, et cetera. Um, and there were some other technologies uh, that I think we, we ended up not being able to bring out of university into industry that had some additional but similar focus on those problems. Um, but I realized that, that in some ways – Carbon and climate were getting very oversaturated relative to many other problems that were going under invested in and under kind of explored, um, and that was that was what led me to start looking beyond uh, beyond kind of the areas I was working in initially. Your business, um, pronounce it for me, please. Sure, uh, umami meats. I'm going to make a statement about the word umami, and you can tell me if I'm well off the mark or close. Am I right in saying umami is the fifth sense of the tongue? Salt, sweet, sour, and bitter, but then you have this umami texture. Am I, am, and is this where your name come, came from? This is my internet research. Is that what your name means? It is, although that's actually an evolution. The word umami was, was coined. I mean, it's a Japanese 
word in common use for describing this savory flavor. But it was actually coined globally by a company called Ajinomoto that created MSG about 100 years ago. And when they created MSG, they had to describe what it did to food. And so they, they coined this term umami and said that MSG can create this umami flavor. Uh, and that's how the world, I think, got to know umami, because otherwise it's just a word in Japanese that most people never would have been exposed to. But in our view, the essence of good food is how it makes you feel and how you, how you, what you taste when you eat it. And umami is, I think, what people strongly associate with foods from the ocean. So an example of umami, umami would be soya sauce with rice. Is the soya the umami? Soy sauce, or if you eat uh, edamame with kind of that uh, similar sort of experience with a, that deep kind of more savory flavor, uh, or seaweed. Seaweed is very commonly what people would say if they eat it. They, they get that sense of, it's, not, it's a little salty, it's a little briny, but it also has a little something else. And that something else is that umami uh, flavor. The, the term MSG, uh, monosodium glutamate, has quite a negative connotation. Yep. Would you agree that that's because of the sheer quantities, the, the abuse that we give MSG, rather than using it in its finery, a del most delicate way? Yeah, I mean, glutamate is a version of a core amino acid that is functional and is actually essential to our core functioning biology of our bodies. So glutamate and sodium glutamate exist naturally. I think the negative connotation is because in, let's say you go to a, to a street food place to get some Chinese uh, stir fry rice, there's a lot of salt in that. And the problem isn't the MSG so much as it is the high sodium. Uh, so I think, I think it's, but the, the, the challenge of course is in communications, distilling things down to a simple message so that everyone understands them without losing the core of the message. And I think oftentimes the core of the message gets lost and the anecdote is remembered. Um, and that's, that's, I think, the problem with a lot of scientific communication, as, as it sounds like you, you have some experience with. Mm. For sure. We hear, sorry if I'm picked you up wrong, but I class, I would, as I've been a chef for the last 20 years, I associate umami very much with Asian food, more so than Western. And But the other thing I was wanting to ask, I just picked up there and I wonder if I picked you up wrong. Did, as well as you saying umami, did you say ed umami? Ah, no. So um, the edamame is the, it's, it's basically like a pre preparation of raw soybeans that are cooked and, and salted. If you've ever seen this in a Japanese restaurant, the soybeans in a green pod that are sort of salted and served as an appetizer. Um, and so it's, it's called edamame, uh, also a Japanese word, uh, separate from umami. Uh, thank you, thank you. Every day is a school day. It's about to be the school day right now when I ask you this question. So now we have a background on your business name. Mihir, could you tell the audience what Umami does and what you produce? And then we're going to come in, we're going to deep dive the process from cell isolation all the way through to marketing. So if you could give us an overview of what it is you do. Absolutely. So we work in a field called cultivated uh, protein or cultivated seafood. Uh, which is essentially using cell culture to grow the edible portions of an animal to produce food without having to grow the whole animal. Um, and this is building on decades of work in cell therapy and in, in cell biology that has been done for mostly human medicine research that we're now applying to food. Um, 
what we do at Umami Meat is actually work on developing a standardized production platform that can be drop-in for a manufacturing partner or for a traditional seafood producer. So they can have their aquaculture business, they can have their fisheries business, and they can stand up a cultivated business unit um, alongside that. Because we, we fundamentally believe industry change comes from within, especially in industries where you can't afford to break things while you're trying to make create change. Um, you know, Facebook can afford to do some some code that breaks the website. If we break the food system, we create a real problem. Uh, so we have to figure out ways to create, introduce more sustainable options into seafood production while maintaining what's already being done. Because actually the problem is not that we can't produce seafood. It's that the demand is outstripping how quickly we can put up new production. Global demand for seafood is on the increase. Is that the point there? Very rapidly. I think we're looking at pretty much a doubling from 2020 level to 2050, mostly driven by Southeast Asia and by middle, middle class growth across Asia. Uh, but there's, there's certainly some growth outside of that region, you know, in, in the Americas as well. Are you talking about growth in the seafood consumption or are you talking about growth in tuna consumption in middle class Asia? So seafood consumption, I think tuna is obviously a kind of a backbone of global seafood supply right now. And, and so certainly will be one of the core drivers. Um, but I was just in, in Japan in, in January and I'll tell you something that, that surprised me. I, I learned that um, in Japan, 300 different species out of the ocean are consumed um, for food. And if you look at Asian cuisine, I think you'll find dozens, whereas in Western cuisine, maybe you find a handful, maybe, maybe two handfuls. Um, of, of different species. And so the reality is that there will be massive growth in tuna, tilapia, salmon, and, and carp probably. Uh, but, but then there's a whole range of species that we eat out of the ocean that we can't farm. And that's where demand is cre- going to create the biggest problem because it's going to drive us economically to catch fish at unsustainable rates. Okay. So I have this huge bridge to cross before considering eating a cell-grown fish. So from the start of your process, could you detail how you isolate the cells from the parent or the mother fish to start with? How do you actually isolate a cell to begin the growing process? Yeah, so if, if uh, for people who've worked uh, on, on fish operations, especially aquaculture farms, you'll know that you typically will sample fish and you'll take tissue samples and look at them under microscopes to make sure the fish are healthy and to look for parasites and the like. And so we actually start from the same. We take one fish and we take a small sample of tissue. Um, We can work with the muscle tissue. We can also work with the bone and the fat because they actually share a common parent stem cell. Um, We actually are looking for that parent stem cell, which can make the muscle and the fat and the bone. And we then basically use uh, enzymes to help us free the cells from the tissue structure which allows us to get individual cells. We, we grow these individual cells for a few weeks and we try to identify the ones that are going to grow well, that are going to be stable so that they turn into what we expect them to turn into later. Um, and we, we were starting to look at predictors of flavor and of kind of the experience. That's going to be a long-term process because frankly, the data doesn't exist today. But we, we ideally want to be able to pick a stem cell and say it can create the kind of flavor people expect when they eat a salmon. 
we're going to pull back from the culturing side. We're going to go back to the isolation. So I know that there are fishermen listening to this podcast and what they're asking themselves right now is, but where does that salmon come from? For example, do you take genes from wild river Scottish salmon or do you take genes from Chilean farmed salmon? What is it that you're genetically reproducing? Where do the samples come from? So this is this is a big challenge for us actually because mm. um, as I mentioned, we want to build something that supplements what we can do today. And so we particularly choose to work on IUCN listed species that are endangered or vulnerable and that cannot be farmed at, at industrial scale, commercial scale. So the life cycle may be closed, but there's nobody running a breeding operation and there's nobody farming at large scale. So we actually have to go get wild fish. And we partner typically with research entities. So for example, with our eels, we've partnered with an entity in Japan where they actually go to the two famous prefectures where eels have historically come from certain rivers and help us to source. Um, and we have to do this because they're endangered. So I couldn't go there and catch one myself if I wanted to. And I definitely shouldn't. Um, so we need to work with research universities. But, but provenance is very important because actually it's one of the things that carries value in seafood, right? If you buy a scallop, you want to look for a scallop from Hokkaido in, in, in Asia. Um, if you buy an oyster, people look for oysters from the Chesapeake. Uh, and I think there's these provenance indications are going to be really important in cultivated if you can reproduce the flavor the way people expect it. And color. And the color. You know, after a few years of doing this, you're going to find that there's going to be certain cells from certain fish that are going to maybe grow a, a, a fraction faster than the next one. So industrially, there's going to be a temptation to use the fastest growers or the rather than perhaps the best quality protein wise. So I'm in, I'm really interested. So you're 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 sampling from wild stocks, not from farm. That's important, right? Yeah. I think it is. I think it's also, I mean, it's a reality of just the species we work with, but I think there, there is some advantage uh, in working with species that farming development has been done, where people have tried to do the breeding and close the loop, mainly because they have genetic data on the fish. So if you go to a wild-caught species that's never been farmed before, it's actually very difficult to have any intuition about how to identify the best so, so there's some benefit to farming, but I think there, there's also the, the, the challenge I think with commercial farming and the reason it gets maybe a bad perception is because the financial incentives demand densities that are probably above what is best for the fish and what would be best for highest product quality at lower volume. Um, there's probably some trade-off you have to sacrifice volume for quality in, in any kind of commercial operation. Um, or that you, you can choose to make that decision. I think the nice thing about cultivation is that's not necessarily the case because we're growing in steel vessels that are isolated from the world around them. So if we steam clean them properly, we're not increasing the disease risk by growing cells at higher density. Picking faster growing cells, if they also taste better, is not problematic. Now, picking faster growing cells that sacrifice taste or sacrifice the right texture down, down the line, that's obviously not ideal, right? And you, you want to kind of balance those two things out. So the next step in your process is um, 
is culturing cells. So like any DNA engineer, you're going to take your cell and you're going to put it in a growing medium, yeah? yeah? And then it's going to go into a bioreactor and it's going to develop. Now, we know today that the mother of every fish is water. It's either the sea, a lake, or a river, the mother of every fish, where the nutrients come from, where the fish grows in. I need you to tell me what exactly is the mother of your fish? What is this gel growing medium that the first cells develop in? What is that medium? Yeah. So what you can get on the market today is basically pure amino acids and lipids and kind of the, the same way you would get components that would eventually make a feed. Um, it's, it's very similar to what's done for pharma today. For us, I guess, luckily and unluckily, uh, that approach is, is quite expensive. And so it doesn't make the most sense. We have incentive to look for other options. And the option that we are developing is actually to work with microalgae because microalgae actually contributes many of the flavors up the food chain that end up in the fish that we eat or the fish that we want to eat. Um, and actually, with the exception of a few river fish, most uh, all saltwater fish cannot produce polyunsaturated fatty acids. They can't produce their own omega-3. They're actually taking those up from the food chain, from the algae. So this is actually solving two problems in one for us. We don't have to synthetically produce unsaturated fatty acids to put into the food. We just we source them from the natural origin and we feed them to the cells directly. And I mean, the amino acid profiles of algae are very nearly complete for fish. And if you blend the right combination of algae, you can get a complete feed for fish cells without the need to fortify it. You, you mentioned there's vitamins in the growing media. You said there's amino acids and I, I assume there's carbohydrates. There's got to be a sugar in there. There's sugars as well. Yep. Here's the big question. Maybe you're hiding the answer. How many growth hormones are in the medium? The devil to the food industry, right? It is, but it's actually, I would say it's a very different thing from the way you feed them to an animal. So growth hormone is typically the equivalent of an HGH, right? You have a bovine growth hormone. So growth hormone is one molecule. It's a GH is the abbreviation normally. You have other molecules that cells produce naturally to tell themselves to grow or to stop growing. Um, one of these examples is FGF or a fibroblast growth factor. But like these are being produced in your body all the time. Um, we use those because actually the organs that would produce them normally, for example, some of these come from the liver, but these cells don't have a liver, right? Uh, so you actually have to produce them and introduce them into the media because then otherwise we'd have to grow a liver for the sole purpose of feeding the cells, um, which biologically doesn't make sense, right? To grow a, a, to grow a tuna liver or an eel liver just to feed muscle cells is kind of a, I mean, maybe elegant uh, in its conception, but it's, it's kind of a, not a rational me method. So what we do is we actually produce the exact protein that the fish cells would need, that they would get, and we're using it at a similar concentration to what would be found in the, in the actual fish. Um, so, so this is our, our goal is to try to keep things as, as close to, you know, what you're, what they should be as possible. Um, and so, we have very strong reason to believe that this safety that we're, of what we're developing is higher than what current processes will allow for. How can you be that sure that the genetic components of your fish are safe when you haven't done trials for 30 years? How do you answer that? Yeah, so the hardest question is long-term studies because they're, they're functionally 
not possible to run for two or three generations, which is ideally what a scientist would maybe tell you to do to be sure, sure, right? Any new technology, we have to really do as much as we possibly can on this. So we're talking to regulators in four different countries right now. I would say the approaches are, are relatively different. And you can imagine in Japan, risk tolerance looks different than in Singapore, than in the US. You know, you could probably get some sense of that. Um, and so then the, the kinds of things they ask us to look for are quite different. And I, I think while that's painful for us as a company, it's beneficial in that it makes us look at the same problem from multiple lenses to make sure as we communicate it to different regulators to their expectation, the chances of us missing something are going to be much lower than if we said, here's what we've done. It's good enough. Everyone accept it. And I think because this is a new industry, the level of scrutiny is much higher. And so the chances of us missing something are going to be much lower than if you're doing a grass notification where the process potentially has a loophole for some new process that it wasn't developed with that process in mind. You've isolated cells, you've grown your product in a bioreactor. Then that, that product has to be harvested. Are all of the products genetically identical like a cloned plant? Or do you have to go through a quality control process to separate the wheat from the chaff? How do you harvest to assure that the final product is safe? Yeah, so, so this is actually something we're spending a lot of time on now because it's kind of a, a blank canvas for us to, to assess. Because in a lot of ways, there's, there's some learning from pharma about how you determine quality. And actually, in, in a lot of ways, their standard is even higher because eventually they're going to put something directly into your, into your bloodstream. They're going to inject it via syringe. And it bypasses all of the stomach digestion, everything else that's happening, but when you eat something. So what we have to look at is they're looking for quality from a, does it work the way I expect it to, which is one aspect of this. But it's food, right? So we have a quality attribute looking at how does it taste? Is it producing the compounds that we know are the ones that create the right flavor? Um, so those are the quality attributes we're now trying to figure out the best way to test when we harvest the cells, because that actually has not really been done to any sort of comparable process before. Yeah. But once we have the safety and the food, the flavor or you know product sensory attribute quality, um, we actually do that every batch harvest. So again, I think an advantage compared to just the realities of, of the way that animal agriculture works is that customs does not have enough people to rec or it's just not logistically possible to do a vet check on every single fish that gets harvested out of a farm, right? We'd be here for centuries um, to do one year's worth of harvest and doing checks. So you do representative checks. But representative checks by their nature can miss things, right? If, if something's happening in a small subpopulation of a harvest, you may not see it. Um, in our process, we will capture a much larger representative portion. And so we'll see, for example, if a, if a fungus or a bacteria got into our process, the cells will all die, actually. So we'll, the, we, we actually wouldn't have a viable product coming out. So in some ways, the cells self-regulate on quality in a way that it doesn't happen in an animal because the animal has an immune system trying to fight those things off, even while they're still present. So any bacteria or negative cells, if you like, don't get passed down genetically, that just dies off. Is that what you're saying? So so, so example, if we grew, let's say, a, uh, like a beer fermenter kind of brewery reactor size of cells, if there were bacteria in that reactor, 
this process is going to run for more than a week. In, in a week's time, the bacteria will completely take over that culture and it will fail. It will fail. We'll, we'll see it failing in real time and we'll kill, we'll kill that uh, process. And then it'll all have to go to waste. There's not really a way for us to take a contaminated culture and pass it through to a consumer because it fundamentally won't have any of the attributes that make it a desirable food anymore. I want to, first of all, go back here and ask you when you were talking about the standards, except that is there, is there a vast difference when you mentioned the different countries or continents that you're talking to, is there a vast difference in the regulation and standards with each of them? I think the standards aren't different, but because we're basically starting from scratch, the way different countries and, and geographies approach novel foods looks different. So the U.S. typically follows its traditional kind of pre-market notification approach that looks a bit like a modified grass notification, um, which basically means you go through kind of a consultative process, you submit a public dossier, and they comment and say, we have no questions about what you've submitted in terms of how it proves safety. Now, when I go to Europe and I, I try to talk to EFSA, EFSA has a scientific component that looks similar where you have to present this safety package, but they take a much less uh, – permissive is not really the right word. They scrutinize claims differently. So where you may be able to cite literature in the U.S. from an academic study, Europe may tell you go do the study yourself and show me the data. Uh, and so there's just a different standard for how they approach some of these areas where they see potential risk. And then in Japan, Japan actually doesn't have a novel foods framework. So unlike a lot of the world, there is no novel food regulation in place. They're starting from scratch. So they're actually trying to figure out 20 years into novel food being you know, 20 years behind the first rules coming out on this, what could they do better? And so then obviously they're asking different questions because they're not asking just for cultivated fish. They're thinking, if I look at GMO plants and if I look at now fermentation-based microorganisms being used as protein sources, how do I write good comprehensive legislation? And so that obviously gives them a different lens from somebody who has that written already and has been using it for two decades. It sounds like the Wild West and that there isn't a regulatory body who controls labeling of the product that you sell? Who does that? In each country, right? So in each country, it follows the way that food labeling is done. The FDA has approved it. No. So we haven't actually submitted to an approval yet. Um, there is a, a cultivated chicken product that has recently received FDA approval. But for your land-based animals, so for your chicken, pork, and your beef, you have to go through USDA as well because USDA typically controls the labeling of those animals, and FDA is still looking at the food safety standards. So that chicken has to go through FDA and USDA for separate reasons. But seafood, because it's mostly imported in the U.S., goes through FDA only, because FDA is handling the, the imports of that. This is actually an enormous time for the FDA, because approving Asian-caught, bioengineered, genetically grown fish could have an enormous impact, say, on the North American fish industry. So they must deem it as an innovative new product. Yep, we have GM crops and meats, and here comes fish. 
But are, do you find there's a resistance for them to approve it until there's several more years testing or are they on the edge of approving this? Is this a tidal wave that's about to hit in the next year or two? Or do you think five or 10 years? So I would say, so number one, I think FDA doesn't face the same kind of, let's call them industry pressures that USDA would in the US because the big food production lobbies, like the US doesn't really have a fish production industry in any meaningful sense. I mean, it's, it's quite a pitiful production level compared to Canada, compared to, you know, even probably Scotland and Norway, the, the numbers are tiny. So there isn't really a consolidated corn or soy or beef cattlemen's association the way for, for seafood with the same kind of power. So FDA, when it's looking at seafood, is looking actually, I think, at probably different political pressures, some of which are our food supply in this category is largely getting shipped halfway around the world. We saw container shipping break down in a major way last couple of years. How secure is that supply? Can I onshore it in a way that gives me more stable supply of food? That's the biggest driver in Singapore, right? And I think the U.S. is starting to have similar thinking, particularly when the supply chain is coming from, has to go through the Suez Canal or has to come in through a port where you could see disruption that could be catastrophic if certain geopolitical events or certain acts of God occur. I mean, it's one of these things that I think is different than I thought initially. I mean, I was certainly thinking the way you were thinking at the very beginning of this process, that traditional industry would be very concerned and maybe opposed to kind of a novel production. But I think our positioning as well helps in this, right? If I'm going to a, to a seafood company and I'm saying, these are fish that are increasingly endangered, you have decreasing quotas every year, but the demand's not going anywhere. The demand's growing. You've actually got customers you can't serve with your traditional methods. I'm going to uh, contest that. I don't know if I totally agree with that answer. And the reason is, June the 12th last year, you tweeted out that you support not caught fish. Now, hang on. Not caught is talking about the seafood industry traditional. Yeah. So if you're against the catching process, that suggests you're against fishing. But I would say our view on this is for a subset of what we do. There is some fishing that we do that is arguably quite sustainable. Obviously, the data quality in, in fisheries tends to be not that great. And so oftentimes we may miss if we're over or under reporting. But there are some species we know we've been fishing down to fisheries collapse levels, right? And I think, I mean, the cod fishery in the North Atlantic is an excellent example of a fishery that we basically drove down to collapse and it has never bounced back to its historic levels. We've now got a manageable population we can continue to fish, but it's far smaller than it ever has been before, you know, before we started commercially fishing it. Jim, we hear that the stocks of cod in the North Atlantic are under threat and are decimated. Is that what the fishermen think and see or not? Right now, I, I, I would say there's a point and it's maybe in areas. I don't think... We talk about I, I, personally. I feel it's too wide a scope to say North Atlantic. Yeah. As, as far as as far as Scotland in general just now is concerned, honestly, I kid you not, fishermen have never seen so much cod, and and even the icy scientists accepted that this year and increased their quota. No, but but. That I'm not. I wouldn't go as far to say that is North Atlantic. 
but it would be interesting to see what you call your products because in a menu, say, in a restaurant in Australia, you'll see Paramundi, for example, and they'll say wild, something else farmed. And I always feel it's so honest and giving people people the chance to choose rather than rather than politicians or scientists to decide for people do you see yourself having a something there that you could there there will definitely be a label that is required to distinguish it from wild caught or farmed fish certainly because the production method is different that is something and and we are 100% on board with that i think that trend, that level of transparency is is certainly a minimum requirement. Um, I think right now the industry seems to be coalescing around this concept of using the word cultivated um, and saying that it's a cultivated, which obviously in fish is a little bit complex because when you say cultivated fish, people probably think about koi where they think about these fish that have been bred for ornamental purposes because that's the historical definition of, of saying cultivated in fish. Um, I don't think consumers will be confused by that because nobody's trying to eat ornamental fish normally. Um, but it, it's something we have to market test and make sure that it is actually easily understood by consumers and also very clearly distinct from traditional methods so that anybody who sees a, a menu understands that it's not the same as something else. I come from a, a, a probably as traditional a fishing background as you could get. My father, my grandfather, my uncles, my cousins, all... It's all been fishing, so that's our that's our life, and that's what we believe in, and strongly believe it's a good product that's sustainable. But I'll be honest with me here, your what you're saying, and your product end product, it doesn't frighten me. I I see it as long as long as I had the choice, you know. I think that would. I think that would be the important thing. It doesn't frighten me or make me feel that it's men in white coats that are going to be ruling us. I, I honestly have to say it doesn't frighten me. Yeah, I mean, the, the way that I approach this, right? I mean, I, I spent not nearly as long as your family has spent in seafood, right? I was, I was in and around aquaculture for three, three and a half years, uh, supporting fish farms mostly in, in Southeast Asia, fish and shrimp farms. Um, I think the challenge as I see it is, is there are very just different things happening, for example, in Scottish salmon farming than there are happening in shrimp farming in Indonesia uh, or in barramundi farming in Vietnam. And barramundi off the coast of Australia versus Vietnam is night and day, right? I think just the one product quality that you get from different methods of operation is not the same. And I think in a way that has come to be seen as, well, barramundi is not a good quality fish because I'm getting it from a certain kind of farm and it comes with a muddy flavor. That was my perception when I ate barramundi until I figured out how to get it from from producers who could make sashimi quality barramundi. Um, and I think this is, this is just a core challenge is if we need to produce more fish, we can't really catch more. We can farm more for some species, but not for everything. And so what do we do for the species we want to eat that we can't farm more of and that are really slow to reproduce? I mean, eels are, are species like this. The generation time is very long, right? Halibut's another one. The generation time is very long. How do we increase productivity of this fish 
if we can't actually make the fish grow faster uh, or make more of them. And I think this is where we see cultivated as a way to try to do that. I don't think it's the only way by any means. And I suppose the increasing or the escalating world population has to have not just what's sustainable here today, but if you think 10 years from now, we'll be up to 9 billion people. We have to eat. And if you're saying there's a demand for the protein that comes from seafood now, that that's going to eventually outstrip what can be caught wild and farmed. I, I, I get that. So let's take the halibut, which is famously long to get from juvenile to breeding stage. How long would it take to grow a 100-gram portion of white halibut in a lab, considering it might take six years for it to be able to get to the point of breeding in the wild? Sorry, can I butt in here? Before he, uh, Mahir answers it, I think would the, would the term grown be better than built? No, it's not because it's built. You decide, Mahir, built or grown. You, he'll prefer grown, but the truth is it's been built with locks. <laughs> well, it depends, right? I mean, the cells are still growing. So, yeah, you know, to teach their own, I think we have, we, we try not to be dogmatic on language, however people choose to understand what we do. You know, like, I'm not going to try to force somebody to, to think of it the way I think of it. I think that's counterproductive. So in 2020, the Good Food Institute is a massive supporter of you guys. They, they announced that there was sales of around 20 million in 2020 of Selby seafood. I can only imagine that's relatively low do you can you put that in perspective that number has that increased greatly since 2020 i'd I'd actually honestly be surprised if the number was 20 million because there were no cultivated seafood products that were had gotten regulatory approval in 2020 so i'm not actually sure unless that includes plant-based which maybe it does the food and agricultural organization united nations in 2020 declared there was about 180 million tons of wild fish caught and it came to a value global value of about 150 billion of wild and farm fish. Now, if you're at 20 million of sales and the wild and farmed is at 150 billion, that would suggest you're a century away from even scratching the supplies of wild and farm fish. Could you play with those numbers and put it back to me in perspective? Yeah, I, so I, I, I do think uh, that building cultivated into a meaningful part of the category will be a generational effort, right? Um, you look at anything that gets built, you know, if I say I need to build a thousand factories, that sounds kind of crazy, right? But actually, if I asked you how many slaughterhouses are there in America for chickens, would you guess that number is in the hundreds or in the thousands? Yeah. Okay. So take hundreds in the US, several, probably as many in the EU. You're probably looking at three to 5,000 globally. If I'm just rough ballparking it, I don't know if that number is real, but it's probably pretty close. Um, so it's not like what we're saying is we need to build parallel infrastructure on a similar order of magnitude to what the food system is today. If we talk about doubling capacity. You can look at what it takes and basically say, I need 2x what's been built. Um, the benefit here is that we can produce more quickly and therefore become more efficient on a space and resource basis than farms that are constrained by the biology of animals. So Let's go back to the halibut example and say it takes six years to eight years to get your halibut mature and then kind of spawning the next generation. And in our case, a production process would be in the four to six week range. And that would be, that would be, so if you run a, a pilot scale, ton scale, 
But if you run commercial, could be 100 to 1,000 ton scale. Um, and we're talking about for batches. Now, food is typically not a batch production process. It's typically somewhat continuous, right? So you've got batches that are kind of being harvested multiple times before you fully complete a production cycle. Um, that, again, can increase your productivity six to seven times. So you could be looking at, let's say, six to 7,000 tons in a couple of months from a single production line. That starts to become really meaningful. The industry is just not at the point yet where we're able to attract traditional industry to invest. Say instead of trying to invest in a bluefin tuna fishing vessel, you're going to invest in a production facility to make bluefin onshore. Um, and with rising fuel prices and everything else and, and having to chase the stocks further, maybe that actually makes sense at some point uh, where that financial bet actually makes sense as a competitive, on, on purely financial terms, that you would choose to bet on a factory as opposed to a fleet. But a venture capitalist or an investor or a bank is going to be reluctant investing in this sale-based seafood industry because of the cost, the cost of production just now and the cost of sale-based seafood compared to wild or farmed. There's such a gulf there that at the moment, sale-based seafood, it's like figs in Rome. It's only accessible to the elites of society just now and high earners that can. So I would imagine as an investor, I want to see that the actual product can compete at a financial value. Am I right there? Because you're using a lot of energy to grow a fish. So yes and no. If you, if you compare it to farmed fish, we use less energy than it takes to produce all the feed that goes into feed production for fish farming. Now, obviously, in wild caught, the sun does all that work. Uh, up the food chain. And so you're basically paying for fuel only. And so on an energy basis, you know, our target is on par with what a, f what a fishing uh, operation requires for running deep sea fleets. Um, but actually there's, there's kind of a hidden piece of this, which is never really tracked because frankly, FAO stops when the fish comes to port, which is what happens when it land, when it's a landed product before it gets to its end market. A lot of that's air freight, right? And a lot of it's chilled air freight, which is tremendously expensive from a carbon footprint standpoint compared to all other methods of shipping. Um, and that data is kind of lost in the weeds because it's just nobody really has all of the data to track that properly. I, I totally agree with that. But without, without kind of deviating too far from, from your question, I think more, more broadly, we're focusing on these premium species that have supply limitations because we know that if we can produce something at parity with, with that higher end price, we can bring it down to mass market over time. So we can do what Tesla's done in EV. And now you're seeing nine and 10,000 euro electric vehicles on the market. When the first electric vehicle seven or eight years ago that was kind of a mass, mass luxury product was $120,000, right? Something in that range. And I think it's kind of a similar sort of thing. You can never really get to the volume that you need to bring costs down day one, but you need to find a way to sell what you can make in small volumes while you scale up. And so this is our strategy on this. What about consumer acceptance? Let me give you an, an example here. About five years ago, I was in California. I was interviewing the owner of a what's called a gray water factory. So what they do is they draw gray water from washing machines, toilets, bathroom showers. They reprocess the water and turn it into pure mineral water, which I drunk. That business in Orange County is now collapsed, folded, an enormous production plant because the consumer could not 
get their head around the idea of grey water that came from my shower. And there was ne- there never was this consumer acceptance. How do you think you're going to get over the idea of robotic seafood, GM fish? How are you going to fight that? What's going to be resistance? What's your plans? Yeah, well, so I think first thing is that we actually don't use GM. So our product will not be genetically modified. We're using naturally sourced cells, and we're not engineering the cells. So that's kind of one piece that I'll just set there and leave alone and happy to dive into. But to, to, to make sure that I actually address your, your broader question, I think the key is to understand why people value certain fish products and certain species, what makes them ascribed value to some fish and not others. If I were to look at sushi in the 90s in the US, that market did not exist, right? Americans were averse to raw fish. And I think uh, if I go back and look, there were likely headlines in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times mocking the idea of Americans eating raw fish because it was culturally not a thing that was widely adopted. Now, some of the most premium seafood in America has Japanese chefs serving sushi. I think it's really about creating aspirational value around particular attributes that people care about. And so in the case of sushi, there was something about the Japanese cultural tradition of eating fish a certain way and the you know decades of expertise it takes to become a lead sushi chef that helped to make that a reality in America. But we see this in many different product categories. Our view on this is we want to partner with traditional foods companies. So we're actually working with one of the biggest fishing companies in the world to develop a cultivated product that they would launch under a brand, under their family of brands, through their existing channels. And they're helping us to learn what the market wants and what format is the right one to introduce the concept of cultivated. Um, and then what are the growth opportunities long term? Right, because it's a journey. It's not, it's not a, you find a product and it's a winner. It's a, who, when my early adopters come in, what do they want? Do they just want to be the first in the world to eat something new? Or do they, do they want to eat high omega-3 snapper because they've never had that before? Um, and it's a bit of a novelty. We have to, we have to figure that out, right? And, and that's the kind of thing that you don't study for traditional fish because nobody's able to make a high omega-3 snapper when you catch it on a boat. Uh, so it's not a thing that anybody thinks about. Like, is there a market to, to make that uh, kind of a marketing angle for a product? Okay, let's assume for a moment that, my goodness, I only hope it's the truth, but you've told us your answer to that question, which is the market resistance, how you intend to penetrate. And I think everything you've just said is is quite honourable, but what I'm going to do just now is I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that there's another influence in your industry here. I'm going to read you a little paragraph here from the Sustainable Seafood Initiative, who seem to be taking a completely different way to getting you guys into the market. Listen to this, published in November. The welfare of billions of people and the stability of life on Earth depends on our healthy oceans. In that effect? Listen to this. Overfishing has driven numerous species to extinction and ecosystems have been fished to the point of collapse. Shifting to plant-based, cultivated and fermentation-derived seafood is the only tractable and provable way to improve our ocean's health. The Sustainable Seafood Initiative are directly attacking the fishermen that at the moment keep our coastal communities alive. That is dangerous, negative marketing that's trying to crowbar a space in the food industry and wedge it open using fear as a tactic. 
do you agree with the, the Sustainable Seafood Initiative on its blaming overfishing for the problems in our oceans? I think there's a lot of problems in our oceans, not the least of which is they have been capturing like 90% of the carbon we've been putting into the atmosphere for the last 100 years plus. Um, and that we're, I mean, I think, I think our biggest challenge is we actually have no idea what we're doing now is unintentional geoengineering when it comes to climate change. And it may very well break things we've relied on for hundreds of years. So I think there's a need to innovate purely out of self-interest for having options in the future that we've explored. But I don't think de demeaning the work people do to put food on the table is the right way to go. I think it's always the easy road uh, for people in technology to sort of say the old way is bad, the new way is great. Um, but I'm also a little bit cynical of that kind of language, right? I mean, you've seen that kind of language and then you look at the results and the new way of doing things is the same as the old way of doing things, but like the money's concentrated in fewer hands. And that's not necessarily an improvement. It's an improvement from a certain point of view for a certain group of people. Um, but I do think there is a conversation to be had about the methods that we have maybe taken for granted because we just assume that they would continue working. I mean, looking at what happened in the Alaskan crab fishery this past winter, um, where you know the crabs basically disappeared for snow crab catch. Um, what happens if that happens for multiple fisheries for multiple years and we don't have answers for where they went? Um, what if climate change causes hotspots in the ocean that actually put certain fisheries at 50% or less than 50%, let's say for Indian Ocean tuna, then we have a real problem when it comes to actually feeding people. Um, it'll be the equivalent of what we see with the Ukrainian war right now with wheat supply, but magnified over more than just one season and more than just one commodity. And I think that becomes an existential threat. Because the, the biggest things that destabilize civilizations are when people can't eat, when they can't get water, and when they can't get housing. Right? And so I, I think of food as something that is critical to keeping kind of society progressing forward and, and keeping the parts of society that we want to keep. And I want to make sure that we have options so that we don't run ourselves into a situation where things that are – call them outside of our control or outside of our predictive ability – force us to make last ditch efforts because we, we miss something, right? Um, that's kind of my view on this. It's, it's more of just a pragmatic, like I think we should be taking a more diverse range of approaches. Um, but I can't make 200 million tons of fish tomorrow anyway. And I can't do that in 10 years anyway. So there's a realistic angle to this of like, we need to put food on the table and not say, let's get rid of what actually keeps people fed today. Yeah, but that's that's what your guiding bodies are doing. I mean, I quoted the Sustainable Seafood Institute. If I was to quote the Good Food Institute as well, they just published a 39-page guide that begins, guess what, some dire warnings about environmental threats to world seafood eaters. Now, I get that they're passionate about you guys coming in with cell-based food, but that there is why the seafood industry traditional is going to deem you guys as a threat because these enormous initiatives and bodies are saying, you're, you're all a bunch of bad boys. You shouldn't have been eating the fish out of the ocean for all these years. Look at the mess you've made. Do this. I wish everybody, I wish you were on the front of these sustainable seafood institutes and good food institutes because they're actually going to create walls to market for you, that kind of publication. No, I agree, right? I think, I think the worst thing you can do being purely self-interested as a, as a small company entering a very large market, I think the worst thing you can do is pit everybody else in that part of the world against you.
right? And the only way to do that is to attack all of them at once with a broad brush. There are certainly practices in the seafood business that need to be improved and need to be made more sustainable. I think, I think you could ask anybody in the business and they would say, they would point to things that they would want to improve and that they think should be improved. I would say there's also, for better or for worse, lobbying organizations that sometimes take the absolutist approach on behalf of the people they support, right? And they say, there are no problems here. And that's also not true. Um, but I think the answer is looking at the, the truth is somewhere in the gray. It's not black or it's not white. Um, and, and there's some, there's somewhere where we say, you know, we can, produce salmon, but I'm not going to produce tuna by farming realistically in, in the next 10 years um, at any appreciable number. So people claiming that's a solution that's going to come to market and solve some problem with them running illegal catch of tuna, probably not, you know, like th- those, those guys are probably maybe taking some liberties with how they're, how they're describing what they're doing. Um, so I think there's, there's a little bit of a, if we, if we actually come at this and say, what do we need to do collectively to solve these problems? I think we get somewhere. Ashley mentioned earlier the coastal communities. The, as a rule of thumb, in the UK, you're talking about twelve to 15,000 fishermen. And the rule of thumb is for every fisherman at sea, there's seven jobs ashore for the people that are working with them. So we're really talking about an industry with a very small voice as far as politic, the politicians are concerned, and that's a very big frustration they have. But it's really dependent on it. It's, it's over 100,000 employees. And for a population of Great Britain, that's quite big. But uh, uh, one instance, when we were talking about the availabilities and very, very much a species-by-species species situation, and we had a podcast, just the last one of the last podcasts we did, uh, a good friend of mine, Peter Bruce, he's a fisherman from Peterhead, and he was just making the comment, we have an awful problem. The problem he has is there's so much haddock in the North Sea. It's almost too much and the need for the available food and it needs to be fished more. Now, as he was saying that, now we're talking in the 2020s. It reminded me of my father telling me a conversation he was having with a, another skipper just after the war, the World War Two. So we're talking in the late 40s, early 50s. And the conversation went, he was asking a fisherman, Have you, are you seeing any haddock? And the comment he got back was, he says, the next haddock you'll see is in a glass case in a museum. <laughs> now that is the 50s, and now we're in the 2000s, and there's the, the seas are full of them. So it's, it's a localized discussion. It's hard, it's hard to talk about any of this with, with broad strokes, right? I think, I think the, harder, the harder piece of this is to know what, if anything, was displaced that has been replaced by haddock. Because presumably... Um, if a population has come back, which let's say, let's say that it has, is it, is it kind of out competing another species due to changing ocean temperatures, changing food sources, something like that? I mean, the, I think the part of the problem is we, we have a very poor understanding of really how these ecosystems work underwater. And so it's hard to know if we see 
a drop off in population one year or another year, is that a long term problem? Is it something we really need to pay attention to? Is there some cycle that we're not seeing? And this is some side effect of that. Um, all of those things are really hard to answer. And so the easy answer is always to paint with broad strokes, which is never really the right answer. I mean, I think we look at localizing production so that we cut down on supply chains that could be more vulnerable to disruption. I think we also look at, um, particularly for species that are high up the, the, the food chain, being able to provide kind of mercury and increasingly plas- microplastics-free fish. I think this is becoming more of a concern. It's, I'm hearing a lot about it here in Asia. I don't know if it's a similar conversation in, in, in Europe right now, um, but we're seeing a lot of fish with, with plastics in their stomachs when they're when – they're, there's enough research papers out now that consumers are starting to pay attention to that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of concerning, right? Because if I talk about things that are going to pop up in a generation that are probably going to be our generate, my generation, at least version of lead and gasoline or what, what have you, I think it's going to be all the stuff that comes from plastic byproducts and food. Um, because we know those chemicals are endocrine disruptors. We know that they have health effects. We just haven't lived long enough to have population scale data over two or three generations uh, to your point earlier. Right. <laughs> but it's the, not just the sea that's affected by that. Let's be honest. No, of course not. It's in the rain. It's in breast milk. It's everywhere. We're going to maybe take this to an end now, but I'm going to ask you a really pertinent question. Can all fish be genetically recreated as in, could you come along in five years and go, wow, there's a huge market for small haddock in Scotland. Let's get a cell plant in Edinburgh and let's produce haddock alone for this market. Can you do that? We are aiming for that level of versatility. I would say it's not a it's not a switch you flip, right? You have to do the development work and the scale-up work. Um, but what we're trying to do is build kind of a modular production unit that we can automate and that we can then train Um so that the same team could produce different species because you, you see different, you see often see seasonal demand for seafood, right? People have been trained by what can be caught and in, in, in which seasons. And I think we're not going to change that with the volumes we do in the next few years. And so there's an ability to produce fish based on where the demand is around peaks uh, to help smoothen kind of demand spikes and price spikes that you see seasonally. I think the, the challenges come with the marine invertebrates when you want to look at things like scallops and oysters and octopus, because the biology is just so much more poorly understood in those species. Um, but those are also the ones that we have kind of the biggest problems with, you know, like now there's this octopus farm getting set up in South of Spain and it's drawing a lot of ire from activists, but I think even from fishermen um, and, and people doing aquaculture saying, I think there's a line where the species becomes maybe too smart for us to farm it in these conditions in the way that we're farming it. Yeah, I think you just also brushed on another um, important point that has to come in. And it's we, going back to this question I was making about the barrier to market, the hurdles you have to social acceptance. A great amount of people who eat fish in the world, they don't just eat fish. What they do is they value the catching, the angling, the small boats. There's tens of millions of people every weekend recreationally fish and end up eating the fish. And I, I suppose you don't have a chance of ever converting the fishermen or the, the recreational fishermen into being a cell-based fish consumer. But I, I say that, I say that, but then Henry Ford invented the engine. And he said, look, these horses that are pulling the taxis around in London, they're messing up the streets. 
his cruelty to the horses and whatnot. And all of the horse-drawn taxi drivers said, this will never stick. They can't replace horses with this thing. Well, five years later, those horse taxi drivers were polishing the new Ford cars that were taxiing around. So it's wrong for me to say you'd never convert an angler into eating this type of fish. I suppose with enough time, and there are these horror stories coming out of the ocean now about the microplastics and the pollution, that it only needs one big story, I suppose, to, to change the game for you, and then we see you. If, if a study comes out tomorrow saying if pr- prolonged uh, consumption of certain kinds of fish with certain levels of plastic increases your rate of cancer, X, Y, and Z, I mean, that that has changed industries before, right? That level of reporting alone started the GM concern that's been now 20 years in Europe, right? It was one article about tomatoes, and it was not entirely accurate reporting, but, you know, one article about tomatoes in a paper, and, and it... The, the rest is history, right? But Dad's saying he's not scared of your, you and your product, and neither am I. But what I am a little bit apprehensive is, is that the fate of the fishing industry could be decided upon on a hack reporter or one of these sustainable seafood industry associations making huge media calls on the dangers and whatnot that are unfounded. That That's a bit upsetting that one hack newspaper article could change everything. Well, Ashley, if I was to say to you, you're men- you mentioned it, you brought it up, the Henry Ford invention. When he, he was asked about the invention of the mo- his first car was a Model T Ford, and he was asked about the invention, and his reply was, if I asked the people, this is Henry Ford, if I asked the people what they wanted, they would have answered faster horses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they couldn't conceive of a car, right? Mimir, I'm just noticing here on the recording desk that your hard drive space is running low. So what I'd like to do is um, I'd like to wrap up the, the interview with you by giving you the the chance to tell people where they can find you personally on social media, but also to share any aspirations, to quell any fears, or to blatantly sell what you're doing. Please take over and tell our audience where they can find you to start with. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can find us online at umamimeets.com on on LinkedIn under the same name. Uh, If you have questions, I'd actually love to hear more from people who've worked around traditional industry. My email is just mihir, M-I-H-I-R, at umamimeets.com. Feel free to drop me cold emails. I love that. Um, I think for us, this is a journey. And I don't think we are going to solve all the problems in the world tomorrow. I think Cultivated can help us create a food system that will stay sustainable for the next 100 years. And it can be it can play a role in that. Um, but I also try not to be arrogant enough to say that this is going to be a cure-all for everything and that it needs to replace everything we do today. Uh, so I think with that in mind, you know, we're, we're kind of early in this journey, but we're trying to figure out how we can help support traditional industry. Uh, you know, one aspect we didn't really touch on deeply, but it's, it's a super difficult one is, is what happens when industries transition, because inevitably figuring out how that, how that translates into economic kind of change for traditional communities is a really tough conversation and maybe more apt for a political conversation than a company. But I think I think it's something that we try to consider and think about how we can be part of creating the next opportunity rather than just producing something that 
makes life harder for, for some group of people. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about Cultivated or have thoughts pro or con, I'm happy to hear from you. And, and thanks very much for, for your time. Thanks for joining us in the episode, Mihir. Thank you. It's a great conversation. Mm-hmm.